It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down American loser the day I was born There have been several delays recently. There has been the Jewish Beach Boys. There has been a Pentecostal, bilingual, Spanish-English religious service going on in the background. There have been ballet recitals. There have been drills going off in the background. But we're live at the Bellworks, folks, and this is American Loser, and we're back. Thank you for your patience. This episode's very late, but you know what? Sometimes it's worth waiting for, right, Dad? Absolutely. This is going to be a good one. We wanted to do this right. We were crackling. The energy was great. The info was great. We were killing it. And then literally, I think a jailbreak was going on or something like that. Yeah. When, you, yeah. when you're trying to drill through concrete, that makes a noise when the recording table starts to vibrate. You know that I think maybe we got to shut this one down. Yeah. So it's a little bit weird here. It's a late episode, but you guys know the deal. My name's KP Burke. I'm a stand-up comic from New Jersey. My Dilf of a dad, LP, Lawrence Patrick, is here with me as well. Say hello, Dad. Hey, we're here. We're here. We're high, finally. Mike and Ming taking great care of us. I mean, sort of. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing. Mike and Ming take great care of us over to Shared Universe Podcast Studio in Homedell, New Jersey now. Behind the ones and twos, the master of disaster himself, the big kahuna in the building. What's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good, buddy. I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you for making the time on a Sunday. These are one of the last few Sundays we get to record here because it's almost football season, baby. And for I have sure. a lot of anger I have to yell at the TV in between Bud Light commercials. Got to get that so, Nerf football to throw at the screen. That's the truth, my friends. Nerf. But- <laughs> Let's Nerf. be specific. As yeah. any regular football, <laughs> ULP and new TV. First and foremost... I got to make an announcement, folks. I'm very excited. It's a big one. Yep, yep. So uh, I'm hoping, uh, Cahoons, I'm no pressure on you, but uh, this these will be ready to come out today, right? Yeah. So today is Sunday. Uh, it's the last Sunday in August. And uh, you guys have about two weeks. If you are a listener of this show, if you are a fan of this show, if you like any of the stand-up I've ever done, I've been doing this for 10 years. I have lost relationships. <laughs> I have lost houses. <laughs> I have sacrificed potential careers, very lucrative opportunities. Because this is my passion. This is what I want to do. This is where I feel the most alive. You're a it's, proper artist. It's the truth, man. It is. And I appreciate that, too. And we has all come together. And after 10 years of writing dick jokes and getting to work with my heroes and making the people laugh that make me laugh when I was a kid, I'm finally going to be recording my first album. It is going to be filmed and recorded over at the Smod Castle, Kevin Smith's Smod Castle, right next door to the Quick Stop where they just wrapped on Clerks 3. Right in the heart of Leonardo, New Jersey, on September 11th, I got two shows, a 7 o'clock and a 9 o'clock. Come on out for that. The ticket link is live on the Smod Castle website. That is S-M-O-D-C-A-S-T-L-E.com. All I was right? really hoping you were going to spell Smod Castle wrong, but you didn't, and I'm, I'm proud of you. I, I just had to fight <laughs> through that one. You know why? I got to be on my A game because the director of that special is in the room right now, and he's going to hey. give me a hard time if I screw it up. <laughs> you got to go with family on shit like this. The Big Kahuna will be calling the shots, directing it. It's a multi-camera shoot. The microphones are going to be set up so that the audience reaction is going to be caught in there. 
If you guys come out to the show, there's a good chance you're going to be on this thing. We're recording this bad boy, and I can't wait to put it out. I can't wait to have everything going here, man. And Cahoons, you know, I love you, buddy. You're very important to me, so thank you for doing this. I'm so excited to work with you. I, Dude, this has been in the works for a minute. You've always – so for those who don't know, I'm, I am I work in film and TV and do my own productions and stuff like that. So KP always gives me cool notes on shit that I'm working on and friggin' – this has been in the in the, in the works for a minute. You came to came to me with this almost a year ago. We knew we had to slowly build this up, and I didn't want to do it until I was ready for it. I have, have two all questions the pieces for you. In place. Hit me, brother. So, when did you realize you wanted to work with me? And two, why didn't the puppets scare you away? That's a- <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I'll tell you what, man. We wanted to do an album for a while. I wanted to make sure I was ready to do it. And uh, it's one of those things where you start saying, in another year or so, I'll be able to do it. I'll be ready for it. And then someone you don't respect puts an album out. And you say, oh, well, this motherfucker's doing it that I'm putting. <laughs> so That's right. I'm teasing around on that one, man. But uh, I'm excited about this one. So, guys, do me a favor. Come on out to that. It's going to be two shows. It's limited seating. The Smod Castle is amazing. It's a state-of-the-art facility. It's literally located right next door to the Quick Stop. Where, by the way, Kahuna was just in Clerks 3, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. You've got film cred. Yep. Yeah, I, I had a very brief walk-on appearance. Uh, but my face is clear as day in the movie. Nice. I thought it was go- – I literally thought it was going to be like they weren't going to really show my face like or anything like that. But no, Kevin literally told me because I was facing the counter where I shook and met Jeff Anderson for the first time. Nicest dude ever. And <laughs> That I, would be Kevin Smith, not yeah. Kevin P. Burke. That's <laughs> Different Kevin Patrick. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, Kevin Kevin Smith literally goes, nah, Christian, turn a more profile. We want you in the movie. I was like, <laughs> fuck yes. <laughs> so I, I, make, I make a very small appearance in that. It was a fucking great time. I texted Kevin afterwards. I was like, thank you so much for the opportunity. I can't believe this happened. He's like, dude, no worries. You belonged there. And I almost yeah, cried the on the truth. way home. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Well, as uh, I just wrapped up a great weekend of shows in Punchline Philadelphia with uh, a guy, I'm going to just go ahead and call my friend now, Bobby Kelly, who's one of, uh, I swear to God, I think he might be, he's the best live act in comedy. You have to go see him if you haven't. And uh, I told him that uh, my boy, the big kahuna, my sound engineer for the podcast, uh, is in Clerks 3 right now. And he goes, why is your sound engineer more famous than you? <laughs> <laughs> can't be that good of a show (laughs) i gave bobby a founding loser patch by the way it's bobby it's not his fault i was kind of born into it okay man (laughs) i'll explain later (laughs) ah set adrift on memory bliss baby Uh, inside baseball for those who don't know but please come on out to those shows Kahuna will sign your autographs afterwards and I'll thank you for listening to me tell dick jokes there you I go. will gladly sign autographs it'll be super fun and it's my birthday a little extra guilt on that one and I love doing this show it now, means a lot to me how am I going to remember the date 9-11 9-11 I got to get that in my head yeah I got to get a calendar Jesus <laughs> 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock on the Smodcastle website I will put my stuff up all over social media as soon as possible for that Kuna just shot a little promo video for me. And we got to talk about our topic this week, though, folks. Yeah, let's get to it. So I'm excited, man. This guy rules. This guy is perfect loser fodder. We had a killer episode about him that we were working on. I want to recapture that magic because, guys, the public enemy era is one of the most fascinating eras in American history. And by the way, thanks to the good people over at Hollywood, we have no real idea because no. everything just got so either over romanticized or told out of order or butchered or bastardized. 
And you did a little bit of research on this one here, LP. Hey, touch a touch. Well, <laughs> It's hard for us to discuss some things here on American Loser. For instance, when we cover true crime stuff like mob or crime history, we don't want to not tell both sides of the story here, and you don't want to hold both sides accountable. So were the mobsters killing people and operating nearly out in the open at times with a sense of lawlessness? Yes. Yes. Was the government stepping on people's rights at the drop of a hat to take down individuals they deemed dangerous? Will that be a yes for 500, Alex? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, were some of these people dangerous to society that needed to get taken out? It's all yeses. <laughs> yes. And again, so who are really the thugs? Is it thugs with badges or thugs with Tommy guns? Sometimes Ooh. it's both. All right. So if I told you the story, Kahuna, of a lone FBI agent tracking down a dangerous gangster, that's a pretty good story, right? For yeah, a movie? I would say so. Not really complete, though, right? No. Now, if I also tried to sell you the story about a heroic Robin Hood-like gangster who escaped the clutches of the corrupt laws of a country that made him feel forced into a life of crime, it's also a pretty good story. Sounds like it. Still not complete. The truth, as always, is somewhere in the middle, and there is no more incomplete story in American law enforcement history than that of today's loser, what an unfortunate name, Mr. Melvin Purvis. Oh, Melvin. <laughs> I've never, I've never heard of this Melvin Purvis. <laughs> Who is this guy? Reboot. Uh, Purvis will become, in his lifetime, a living legend. In his death, a dead legend. A, <laughs> I still love that joke. A besmirched legend. Okay. He will also interact during his life, sometimes rather violently, with household historical names of crime. And of course, his death is still the subject of some debate. Now that's what I call loser fodder. He's mm. got all the qualities. He's got all the qualities. Checks all the boxes, baby. Absolutely. Born October 24th in 1903 in Timminsville, South Carolina, a town whose Wikipedia page brags openly about having a public library. Yeah, come hey, to Timminsville and get that book that, learning. That's, Timminsville. That's, that's a big time, that's a big time uh, township there. I mean, they got their own library. I don't like shitting on the South. I don't like shitting on any sort of a rural area because I always I enjoy myself while I'm out there. It's great to be reconnected to nature. And I'm always looking for a fun fact. I just couldn't find one. <laughs> About that town, yeah. Yeah. Other than they got a library. Well, he is one of their, uh, their, their most notable people here. Young Melvin is uh, the fifth of eight siblings. So I think he enjoyed a sense of law and order because, uh, hey, let's make sure a little bit of the food is left on the table here, folks. We got a couple other kids trying to eat today. You know what I mean? So growing up, he is very well educated. He is the son of a uh, tobacco farmer, I believe, and uh, known to be quite the marksman. That means a crack shot. That's the kind of guy that can take the tail off a squirrel. Mm -hmm. Said differently, he was raised in the South. <laughs> that was in the military. That was the truth. It was uh, the running joke I had, and Kahuna will love this. The boys in the South always knew how to shoot. I could shoot pretty well because Uncle Paulie taught me from a young age. And then uh, the one guy in our boot camp division... I can't say his name because he might hear this. He was from <laughs> Newark, and he would always tell us. He'd be like, y'all wait till I get my hands on that nine. Y'all wait till I get my hands on that nine. You, know, you ain't going to see, but wait to see me with the nine. And he did not qualify the first time on the nine. <laughs> and he was from Newark. And I said, uh, I was like, I was like, I told the guy, I was like, dude. I saw uh, you with the nine. What happened? Yeah. Are you more comfortable holding it sideways? Is that, <laughs> you want to do it that way? <laughs> he goes, shut up, Burke. <laughs> That's one of the few times in boot camp where the RDCs, my drill instructors, started laughing. They're like, Burke, you can't, like, it's funny, but you got to stop saying this shit. <laughs> so, 
Um, but oh, he's a piece of work, man. Um, now, what do you take when you have a guy who has a, a good education, a sense of law and order from growing up and is quite the marksman? Put them together and what have you got? Bippity Boppity Bureau of Investigation. I love that song. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite the Bureau of Investigation just yet, but uh, it, it's soon to be. Soon oh, to be. This is that fun part where, again, uh, you catch lightning as it happens and you have to try to analyze the lightning as it's crackling through the sky. And it's a tough job. All right. But prior to this. Um, and here will- again, too, just to paint a little uh, uh, verbal picture of old Melvin Purvis here. Again, he's born in 1903. Uh, and he, you know, he's not your John Wayne image of uh, law enforcement. He's uh, go ahead and give it. Yeah. Say he's, it. Uh, he's a romp and stomping five foot four, 127 pounds. So he's not, He's not exactly uh, Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke of, uh, of the Western fame. Uh, and as a matter of fact, his nickname is Little Mel. So, This is how badass Joe Pesci is, is that he's similar in stature and everyone's afraid of him. All right. That's how badass Pesci is. But Little Mel is a piece of work. Now, before he will eventually go into what will become his uh, infamous or, or, or legendary law enforcement career, depending on who you, what stories you want to believe, he will get a law degree. From the University of South Carolina, and he will be a fraternity brother, frat bro with Kappa Alpha Dog, all right? Other famous members of this fraternity, not exclusively um, of the, the South Carolina variety, but other members of this fraternity in which you meet these people and it's supposed to be like a, a kinship. Yeah, it's a national frat. Yeah, so national frat, Kappa Alpha Dog. So we've got like Zach Brown from the Zach Brown Band. We've got Bill Engvall, the unfunny Foxworthy, you know what I mean? we got a... <laughs> Paige McConnell, you know, the dude who brings the funk and fish. He's a pretty cool, dude. Um, General George Patton, he like beat the shit out of Hitler or something. It was pretty rad. <laughs> and of course, even good old Melvin Purvis's future boss, eventual FBI director, the man who appears on all of the VHSs from your 80s cartoons telling you not to duplicate them, <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover. For more on Hoover, by the way, we will not go heavy on Hoover today because we did so many great episodes about him. He ties into everything. I believe he's the linchpin in American history. Um, I, I think he's the most fascinating guy ever. So we will not go into deep, deep detail on him. If you've listened to his episodes before, you know the details. If you don't, go back and check us out. This is not a current events podcast. We live forever, baby. We created our own world. In 1927, though, Purvis will join uh, Hoover's group known as the Bureau of Investigation. And he's going to put to use that good brain that he's got. He's going to put to use uh, – he would put to use, Dad – his uh, excellent marksman skills with a gun, uh, only he can't. Why is that? Well, in 1927, the Bureau of Investigation, uh, uh, Melvin Purvis comes into this organization. He's selected to come into this organization, but uh, right at that particular point in time, the Bureau wasn't allowed to carry firearms. They were investigators. They weren't arresting officers. If you were going to be investigated, they would have to call in the local police uh, under under the law to call in the local police to actually make the arrest. And it would be the locals that would be carrying the, the firearms. So you'd show up with your hall monitor sash on and let people know. That's right. You had well, a badge. <laughs> you had a badge. You could flash that badge. Um, and you know, the interesting thing, too, is at this particular point in time, a lot of these guys that came into this newly founded uh, Bureau of Investigation without any kind of training. So uh, Purvis at least had an understanding of the law as 
as a lawyer, but not really as a uh, um, police uh, police science type of type of individual. Well, this is a relatively new position too. You're seeing the advent of modern policing around this time. So it's pretty wild here because again, this is the Bureau of Investigation. They're not the FBI yet because you know why? They ain't got the uh, the federal um, permissions quite yet. So, um, And this is a wild time. I mean, you attributed later to the, the mobster area. Is that what you called it? Uh, public enemy public era. Public enemy, yeah. yeah. Well, what we're talking, the timeline is like so the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist. Yeah, the zeitgeist is uh, the twenties and thirties, uh, and it's it's wild times in uh, American history. I mean, we're post uh, World War One. Um, you know, you, some people might call it the Roaring Twenties, but uh, part of the things that put the damper on the Roaring Twenties was uh, in 1919 we had the uh, Prohibition Act. Which I'm going to go ahead and say didn't work out. No, that, that, that 18th Amendment thing, uh, although it was ratified by 36 states, the 18th Amendment, eh, a lot of people had a little, uh, little problem with it. A little problem with that. And a lot of other people said, yeah, bring it on because we made boatloads of money on uh, ill-gotten gains, if you will. From I, I like that uh, women were so involved in the temperance movement. Right, that that's why you were able to pass the 18th Amendment to you know create prohibition. Then the 19th Amendment gave women uh, suffrage, the right to vote, which is hilarious because it's like, are you listening now, boys? Are you going to pay attention? We took away your beer. We took no more. Yeah, I put a padlock on the fridge. Okay, are you going to listen to me now? Or are you going to want to talk about the Jets? <laughs> jets, please. No going down to the saloon anymore because uh, that was closed up. Except here's the thing: the idea being, like we say all the time with government intervention on stuff. Um, what do they do? They make it worse. You've now incentivized people to make bathtub gin. You've incentivized the moonshiners down south. You've incentivized people to start bringing in um, booze from other countries, uh, rum from Cuba, whiskey from uh, Ireland, uh, whiskey and uh, other bourbons and stuff from Canada. I wonder Any what alcohol. American tourism was was like during that time because booze like, cruises, let's, dude. Let's go. Let's go take a let's go take a trip to America. Oh, there's no booze. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> let's stay on the Morro Castle a little while longer. Yeah. Oh, was, dude. <laughs> no. Previous, previous episode. There you go. I mean, uh, there was people that just going out beyond the uh, the uh, legal limit on on the waterways, and then you know things could open up again. If, Initially, it was three miles out, and then later on, it was 12 miles out. But once you got out past the uh, international uh, lines, you could, uh, you know, the bar is now open. I've right. got like that's how that's how easy the loophole was. So they would have booze cruises all the time. Yeah. Again, well, how easy is it right now with marijuana, too? You know what I mean? It's almost like that speech from Pulp Fiction where it's like it's illegal for them to search you. Well, the, <laughs> well, the difference between that and now is, is that back then the government actually appeared to give a shit more about it. Now it's like if you get caught with weed, it's like, all right, fine. I don't give a fuck. Ten years ago, it would have been a different thing, too, for you. Now, I will say this. We got to set up one thing. We got to define our terms here, Dad. For the uh, the purposes of this episode, what is the difference between a mobster and an outlaw? Well, a mobster and an outlaw, I mean, these are also wild times. This is, uh, like you said, the, the uh, public enemy type thing, and there's a lot of public enemies. And that had a long history in itself, just making up a list of who's the, the biggest badass, who's the biggest criminal of the time. But we're talking about gangsters and outlaws and mobsters and that type of thing. Well, now... We have prohibition coming in that it's illegal to um, uh, make and transport uh, alcohol, but it's not illegal to consume alcohol. It's just illegal <laughs> to produce it and transport it and to sell alcohol. 
Well, this opens the door for a lot of different um, individuals to who still want alcohol. They're going to make sure that you're, we're going to be able to provide it. And that's um, the, where the mobsters come in. The mobsters are um, a larger organization that are going to provide those uh, illegal goods or services like bootlegging and gambling and uh, houses of ill repute, also known as whorehouses, that they're going to be able to provide those illegal um, activities, um, but more of a large, a larger organization. Um, and they're pretty much, the gangsters and mobsters are pretty much in the cities, um, in the uh, urban environment, where you're going to have your Italian mob, you're going to have your Irish mob, you're going to have your Jewish mob. I mean, all the uh, ethnic groups had their own little... Uh, mobbed them, if you will, uh, but probably the most famous is is the Italian uh, mob, no doubt. And ground uh, zero for that is going to be Chicago with uh, Al Capone, I and mean, he's one of the big names of the of the era. But um, mobsters, gangsters are um, again more of a larger organization that's working towards providing uh, these illegal activities and uh, consumables, <laughs> uh, where the outlaws, outlaws are more harken back to the old West kind of a thing that you have similar times. You've, we're, we're in the 30s. You traded in your, uh, your, your Mustang uh, Colt for a, you know, a Ford Thunderbird, <laughs> a T-Bird, a Model T, I should say. Yeah, we, all, we all make stupid mistakes when we're younger. <laughs> and instead of getting away on horseback, now you're getting away by, uh, by car. But, uh, Similar times. We're in the 30s. We're in the Depression. Uh, the late 20s and 30s, we're in the Depression. Um, people are having hard times here financially, no doubt. Uh, they're taking away our booze. Uh, the government is really cracking down and really not providing for us. Um, similar to the Old West with those outlaws, I mean, this country has always put a big uh, uh, fond remembrance of the good old days back in the old west when uh, things weren't going right. You could just go rob a bank and get away by horseback or rob a stagecoach. Back in those days with the cowboy era, the old west, that was post-Civil War. Again, hard times financially for the country. Now we're in the outlaws of the 30s. We're talking about the Dillingers and the Pretty Boy Floyd. Oh, and they're all coming into play they're here all soon. Com they're all coming into play here. But they're more of a, a, a smaller group or a gang or a family organization like Mar Barker and uh, uh, those, those, that crowd. And they're pretty much centered in uh, the South and, and the West. That They're robbing banks and they're kidnapping people and they're up to all kinds of uh, shenanigans. But and they're also moonshining or bootlegging, um, but to a much smaller degree. They're they're more. Uh, it's a mom and pop time. crime outfit compared to the uh, <laughs> to, the, the to big a, Walmart Amazon that is the, the Irish right. and uh, Jewish and Italian mafias. Exactly, exactly. So here's just your timeline, real quick, because I thought this was important to mention because this is really damn good stuff. This was excellent research by my Delph of a dad, Lawrence Patrick. He did that uh, uh, honestly, a, a above and beyond effort here. So. In 1927, Purvis will join that bureau. And this is at the lightning speed public enemy era that we have going on here. So now in 1932, he joins in 1927. Now it's 1932, two years after Chicago, not the FBI, 
Chicago named Al Capone public enemy number one. Melvin Purvis, at five foot four, nicknamed Little Mel, will come into contact with several members of the infamous list of public enemies. The first public enemy number one, named by the FBI, would be the man that Purvis is often most associated with. The infamous bank robber, gangster, and folk hero, John... Flav of Where's the lie? <laughs> they could always figure out it was him because uh, they would hear a clock just clanking up and down. <laughs> He's wearing around his neck. Uh, you there with the Viking helmet. <laughs> but the first public enemy number one is going to be infamous bank robber, gangster, folk hero, John Dillinger, played by Johnny Depp. In uh, Public Ugh. Enemies, which, by the way, fuck you, Public Enemies. You, I took you as the truth. You have a lot of things wrong. You have a lot of things screwed up. A couple of good gunfights, really good cast. Marion Cotillard, who just makes me feel funny inside. <laughs> but a lot of inaccuracies. So I'll say this one here. Dillinger, as you said, Dad, he's got a knack for evading capture. He's got a little bit of... There's people rooting for him. Yeah, no, he's he's more the outlaw type where... Al Capone was a gangster. John Dillinger was an outlaw. He's he's an independent uh, independent. Uh, he's a 1099 gangster. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, Dillinger is wild, man. He uh, has a knack for evading capture, breaking out of prison if and when they do catch him. Does that a couple of times. Some jailbreaks. That's exciting stuff. Thin Lizzy, baby. Um, and he is not afraid of getting into gunfights with the authorities. Dillinger is known to have participated in at least 12 armed robberies that they know of, where they, they can prove of. it was him. Now, Purvis would lead the manhunt here. Little Mel is now going after this dangerous dude in Dillinger, and Dillinger's cool as they come, man. Yeah, now Dillinger is making a big name for himself in the media, too, because it was weird. The public had a, a change of heart with this whole thing that, again, we're in, a, in the Depression, people losing their houses, losing their jobs, losing their farms, that type of thing. Uh, in the South, you also had the Dust Bowl going on that people are just being wiped out. They're destitute. That whole movie, Grapes of Wrath, when they're moving to California for a better way of life. It is, there's a lot of accuracies in, the, in that. Um, uh, but Dillinger is making a big media play, too. And he's starting to take on like a, a hero worship kind of a role that um, the little guy, the common man, is kind of rooting for these because – these are guys that are going against the uh, big government machine type of thing. And we're talking about Bonnie and Clyde. They had a, a hero worship kind of a thing. They had a lot of positive media. John Dillinger is also getting a, a lot of bad people are getting positive media. Um, and it, they're, they're, again, trying to become like a cult worship kind of a thing. That the, mm -hmm. the outlaws got a lot of things being said for it. Well, again, because it's uh, there's hard times everywhere. This government that people aren't really digging um, is uh, is getting fucked over. These banks that are ruining people's lives. The bank man comes around. That's not a good thing. All right. And these guys are saying, well, hey, these, these guys are fighting back a little bit, man. Let's keep a little bit of our rebellious nature to us. And uh, that's where this John D Dillinger's such a cool cat, too, man. He knows how to talk to the media. There's that infamous photo of him putting his arm over the shoulder. of One of the guys arresting him like like. Fuck hey, man, it's all good. Yeah. That's right. yeah. Fuck you going to do about it. Right. John I'm going to get out. Yeah, and he's he's arrested a number of times and he breaks out a number of times. So he's he's the uh, the poster child of the badass kind of a thing that no, no jail can hold me, that type of a thing. Um, 
but don't bring me down. <laughs> what's uh, what's turning public opinion though is that some of these uh, some of these outlaws and the gangsters. I mean, they're they're starting to shoot up the place. I mean, we have uh, the the Chicago thing where the the Tommy Gun is playing the big role. As a matter of fact, the Tommy Gun gets the nickname the Chicago typewriter. That uh, favorite fact on this show. Continue yeah, right, and then uh, we have got the St. Valentine's Day massacre where. Uh, Al Capone's people shoot up the place and and uh, just absolutely destroy uh, uh, twelve of the rival gang um, on St. Valentine's Day. There's bank guards, there's police that are being shot and killed. Um, so now it's starting to take a little different flavor. They're not just robbing the bank, but they're they're killing people. And innocent bystanders are also being that's killed. the key. So let me uh, set you up for this real quick before we get into the Dillinger Purvis manhunt, because once we get going on the Purvis career, I want to focus on the facts here. But there's a thing going on with Hollywood right now, Dad, that you did some excellent research on where Hollywood is making these gangster pictures. And it's almost like when you hear it, it's a joke on The Sopranos. We're like, it's just a continuation of the Westerns. <laughs> You know, right. So you're it's good these... guys, bad guys, cowboys, uh, cowboys and, and uh, robbers are kind of a thing. Exactly. So um, they're doing they're making these movies and the movies are big hits. And you got a guy like Jimmy Cagney playing um, these gangster roles and becoming super famous. Yeah. Now, again, the, the, the zeitgeist or the times, I mean, we just came out of film. We had film, but they were silent films. So it was in the 20s, the early 20s, where we finally have quote-unquote, the talkies, and we're getting a lot of these uh, Hollywood stars that are now portraying various roles, and uh, again, public opinion is is rooting for these guys. I mean, Hollywood's going to put out stuff that people want to go and see. We're in the middle of the Depression, so if you can go to the movies for a nickel at the time, you can go see a movie and, and be entertained and forget about life a little bit while you're in the movie theater. Um and it might even be air conditioned, which is another another big bonus at the time that the uh -huh. movie theater might even be air conditioned. And Hollywood is putting out a lot of different um, uh, shows that people are enjoying, but they're violent too. Um, and part of that violent is this whole gangster outlaw type of a thing. Jimmy Cagney gets his first big break or his, his uh, claim to fame, if you will, becomes this Hollywood star for his uh, performance as the criminal Tommy Powers in the wildly successful gangster film, The Public Enemy. Uh, he's a, a tough guy. He's a, a small-time hooded, really, though, and one of his big scenes in that movie is he uh, wakes up all hungover, and he's in his pajamas. He comes to the breakfast table, and he's got a problem with the with the woman of the house, and he takes a grapefruit and shoves it in her face. I mean, that was a that was a huge, uh, huge break for Jimmy Cagney. But this is also was put out in what they called the pre-code film era. That um, there weren't any watchdogs uh, rating, not even rating, but whether they were even going to be allowed to be shown uh, in this pre-code pre-code film era. Um, that, uh, you know, if if it bleeds, it leads. Well, if it's rough and tough and tumble, that people want to go see that shit. Well, Jimmy Cagney makes his big uh, his big debut, if you will, or big uh, definitive performance in this movie, The Public Enemy. So 
it's it's a sign of the times, and this is in 1931. And who's going to put a little? Because here's the thing: you're making movies about these guys saying how cool they are. There's already people that think they're pretty cool. You're having a hard time getting anyone local to cooperate with authorities and trying to bust these people down. So now J. Edgar Hoover starts putting the pressure on, like, "Hey, uh, Mr. President, you know what would really help us if these." Uh, dudes out in Hollywood would stop making movies, making us seem like we're the bad guys and that the people we're chasing are super cool. So yeah, and, and pressure comes in from the government now into Hollywood to try to change the perception. So you can still make gangster movies, but now you have to have like a, a warning in the front of it, almost like Jackass, where it's like, hey, uh, <laughs> this is the, the putt. So in when you watch the original Scarface, we've talked about it on other episodes that you have to see it's um, – Howard Hawks has to put that thing out in the beginning. This is a, 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 a fictitious account here of something that could very well occur because in the dangers of this, the, the brave men and women or the brave men of law enforcement back then uh, are going after these people and trying to bring them to justice. Uh, and, you know, people like this can't be allowed to exist. Anyway, here's a really fun movie called Scarface. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, they're, they're is, doing a little tongue-in-cheek oh, yeah, Which is loosely based on real-life activities. But mm -hmm. at the same time, they have to put that uh, put that out before the movie. But in 31, uh, 1931, Public Enemy, the film comes out. And again, this is all pre-code film era. In 1932, a major game-changer in public opinion is uh, Charles Lindbergh, international hero for being the first to fly solo across the Atlantic. Lucky Lindbergh, he's he's... A superstar, there's no doubt, and a worldwide superstar, not just in America. His infant son gets kidnapped. And that was a mode of uh, operandi that a lot of these outlaws and do. You're, you kidnap somebody and you hold them for ransom. You get paid the money and then you, you put the guy back. Well, this Lindbergh's infant son gets kidnapped and later killed. So for now more you, on that, please check out our episode on the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. So, I mean, now you're, now you're uh, killing innocents. Uh, and infant in innocence. There's nothing worse than that. Um, so um, you know, th there's a there's a different tone on uh, all these bad guys, this organized uh, crime ring, and uh, these outlaws and stuff. It's actually there's laws passed now. The Lindbergh laws passed, making it a federal crime to transport a kidnapped person across state lines. Because the problem was back then, early on is that each state had its own set of laws. And if you kidnapped somebody and went across the state line, um, one state couldn't chase into the next state um, legally, if you will, to go after these guys. It's kind of like a Dukes of Hazard kind of a thing. As soon as you cross county lines, you were, you were free and clear. The, I enjoy that the, the you use that guys. reference every time we explain this. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, couldn't come across it or... Uh, um, Smokey and the Bandit, right? He's he's taking uh, illegal uh, beer across uh, state lines or county lines. And yeah. So a guy got... like Dillinger is, oh, shit, that crime was in Texas. We're in Oklahoma now. Nobody looking for us out here. Right. Because you don't have that federal thing. So you're going to start seeing the ramping up of this need for what J. Edgar Hoover's like, my bureau, my bureau can be doing something about this. <laughs> right. So, so now that's, that's what Congress and uh, – um, some of the other lawmakers are making it that now now it's a, a federal crime to be transporting a uh, a criminal and, and it, that goes harkens back to the the Mann Act that I mean all the way back in 1908 um, you were creating some of these laws with transporting uh, people across state lines so um, public opinion is starting to sway but then in uh, in 33 um, men with machine guns are trying to free 
uh, escaped criminals uh, trying to uh, free Frank Nash in what became Jelly known, Nash. Yeah, it, it's what became known as the Kansas City Massacre. That now you got people coming out of a train station, and all of a sudden uh, people are opening up on uh, federal officials and trying to free some of these uh, already captured uh, criminals. Um, so that was a that was a huge uh, headline maker. So without getting ahead of ourselves here, though, because um, the, the, the Kansas City massacre, another thing which we covered on this uh, episode, I don't want to like stick too far into our own um, merits here of uh, past excellent work. Um, <laughs> we are good, aren't we? Again, the best. <laughs> so Dillinger's a character here. Dillinger is evading capture. He's pulling all sorts of stuff like this. Now, Purvis is leading the manhunt now because we've talked about the aura of these public enemy guys, specifically Dillinger, who's a handsome guy living a fast life. Yeah, um, he's a big media personality. Oh, for he sure. knows what he's doing. Um, now, Purvis is uh, leading this manhunt, like we said, and sometimes the good guys do bad things to do a good thing, whereas sometimes a bad guy does a bad thing for a good reason. So that area of gray is what gets operated in here. Yeah, now Dillinger was pretty slippery in trying to, in, in evading capture and then getting out of jail, <laughs> breaking out of jail once he is captured. And um, um, J. Edgar really didn't want anything to do with, uh, with, uh, with Dillinger, that he was afraid of, afraid of him, really going after him. Uh, Purvis was Hoover's like fair-haired child. He was, he put Purvis in charge of a lot of things. He was, um, promoting him to various areas of the Bureau um, ahead of a lot of other people um, because he was getting the job done. And Purvis you know, had a reputation of using uh, some rather, uh, how should we say, tough methods against um, reluctant interviewees. Um, there was a guy, Roger Tuohy, who was a minor league gangster who was arrested for fundraising by kidnapping during uh, his conflict with the, with the <laughs> Chicago outfit. By kidnapping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was alleged that uh, Purvis, uh, how do we say politely, tuned him up a little bit. That while this guy, uh, Roger Tui, was uh, under, um, under arrest, uh, he suffered and lost 25 pounds of body weight several teeth plus a broken vertebrae due to being beaten every time he fell asleep during the weeks of questioning by Purvis's men. Purvis's men. So weeks of you know, weeks, weeks of interviewing. What you just see him at, yeah, just, interrogating just him. Just taking an after picture. Him? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. much. Pretty much. That's where you're going to start to see. So the pushback has to come from here. You have uh, uh, law enforcement that's absolutely useless right now in, in terms of how they're able to go after this organized crime. Organized right. In crime Chicago, I mean, Chicago police was owned by the by the Capone. So, uh, right. And then now so you have to have this counter move by that. But then these guys are getting a little bit too corrupt now. So you have to start to scale them back. But that's what we're trying to cover here today. So enter Say Don it with me, folks. Super corrupted government officials. <laughs> really fucking awful. <laughs> fucking I can't. I didn't know that it was that fucking level of torture and, and stuff like that with rules and breaking of that like i can understand the lawlessness of the era but like there's got to be limits to like that's ridiculous it's just how are you going to get the information out of the guy if he doesn't want to talk to you that's i'd like to see the before and after picture oh my god how'd you lose the weight talk to me about your weight loss journey well i'm not cooperating with you <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
So oh, let me get into this, you bastards. We were already in this point right. around 20, 20 minutes ago. All right, keep going. <laughs> John Dillinger, okay, is uh, he's got a friend who is a Romanian brothel owner, and uh, Purvis is going to track her down, and uh, Purvis is going to start to use her immigration status as leverage. So you want to talk about, we're not physically torturing you, but we are threatening to send you back to that country that you probably escaped from. So using a Romanian brothel owner's immigration status as leverage, she will reluctantly agree to signal Purvis and his G-men on the streets by wearing a bright, bright dress so that she would know that the, that's her and she's signaling to everybody else here. Now, as Dillinger will leave a movie theater in which he is attending, uh, little Melvin Purvis sees him and his signal is that he will now light a cigar this allows his men in waiting to know dillinger's on the scene yeah he, uh, this this woman this um chick came to him uh came to purvis uh, as an informant because at this particular point in time um there's money involved that uh if there's a i think a hundred thousand dollars um for the arrest of uh, dillinger and I think it was $40,000 or $25,000 for um, information leading to his arrest. So, you know, he's a wanted guy, there's no doubt. And bad shit has happened with him. Um, but now to the point where the federal government is passing laws to attack these guys, to go after these guys. And uh, she's coming after the reward money, if you will, and leads to leading Still to Still reluctantly, arrest. you're threatening right. to send her away here. Right. So that signal now that with the cigar being lit by Purvis, that's going to let the uh, the guys know, hey, he's here. Now, rumors will show conflicting reports as to how many agents and which ones fired. But boom, dead in an alley with four bullet wounds now lays John Dillinger, public enemy number one. The he good did, guys got their man. People. He is way dead. So now what's weird is that in the public enemy movie, that's the end of that movie, right? But that's not the chronological order of events as we're about to uncover here. Now, the good guys got their man and the nice madam from Romania who helped them, she gets pardoned by the governor, uh, but still gets deported later anyhow. So, yeah, <laughs> right. cooperate with the authorities or they might do Wait whatever the fuck they How want. How did that happen? Uh, just outside circumstances or they, they rescinded on the deal? It's kind of hard to tell. She could just be an unscrupulous character that we don't need here uh, undermining the moral fabric of America. And by the way, once you're um, I'm not saying a hoe's a hoe forever, uh, but um when you belong to the streets, you probably don't have a resume. You can go dust off to go get back into right. uh, typing school Complete or something. Case, right. <laughs> so next in line, because here's the thing. So I do a joke in my act about a, a, a guy who died who called himself the realest motherfucker alive. And when he dies, there has to be a new realest motherfucker alive. So in this instance, the realest motherfucker alive is the public enemy number one. Public enemy number one is now bestowed upon in the great tradition of now given from John Dillinger to a fellow by the name of Pretty Boy Floyd. Now, Pretty Boy Floyd, interestingly enough, is in one of the opening scenes of Public Enemies, and it would make it appear as if those events took place before the Dillinger stuff, which is a lie. I'm very disappointed in you, Michael Mann. You are one of my favorite directors. Heat is a masterpiece. Public Enemies let me down. So um, now Floyd is a guy we were talking about earlier, Dad, uh, although the exact circumstances of his involvement are controversial, uh, the bloody Kansas City massacre is something that he is suspected of being a very integral part of, if not a gun-toting dude himself. For more on that, go listen to that episode, will you? There you go. So, little Melvin Purvis is already getting some media attention, though. His takedown of Dillinger during the manhunt had gotten him noticed in both good and bad ways by the criminal underworld, and again by J. Edgar himself, like you said, Dad. 
So Purvis is now on the trail of Pretty Boy, and of course, there are three different stories. And this is where it gets interesting, too, because now if a guy like Melvin Purvis shows up, you're going to start to see that thing in movies when a, a federal agent shows up and the local sheriff is like, this is my case, goddammit. A little not bit anymore, of that. It's not. Exactly. <laughs> That's the thing, because this is what will happen is that Purvis will show up and be like, yeah, the, uh, the, the Bureau of Investigation is doing this now. I'm in charge here. And uh, the, the guy's like, well, no, you're just going to you're here to take all the credit, dude. You're like, fuck you. <laughs> and the reason why this is a great example into why that becomes an issue. They are hunting down Pretty Boy Floyd, who's a dangerous, dangerous dude. Story number one, a joint force of FBI agents and local law enforcement one of whom was a trained sniper from World War I, set upon Pretty Boy Floyd and a gunfight breaks out. Pretty Boy had been hit twice before Purvis yelled out, Halt! Pretty Boy ignored the order and was shot and killed, but not before he would refuse to answer any further questions from Purvis. So, part of this story turned into a legend, supposedly often hinted as true by Purvis himself that it was he alone who gunned down and killed the Pretty Boy. So Melvin Purvis is your he's your 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 uh your cowboy at high noon. He's your Gary Cooper just handling business, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh now again, that's part of the story there. Now this guy we talked about who was the local law enforcement dude who was trained as a sniper in uh, World War 1. Yeah. His name is Chesty by the way, great name. Um he claims that he winged pretty boy during the chase and then after uh Floyd cursed at him saying, "Damn you, you's got me" kind of a thing. Purvis then ordered a man named Agent Hollis, to kill him with a machine gun after he refused to answer the questions. Now, this has been debunked. So that's probably like Chesty's over there. He goes, well, you know, I'm the one who winged him. And then they had a, you know, those feds, they just went ahead and gunned somebody down afterwards. You know, I mean, I did all the work here. That's why I should probably get another beer for free tonight, <laughs> right, guys? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm well, the one who killed Pretty Boy Floyd, not them government fellers. Yep. Or do you want to absolve yourself of the killing of Pretty Boy Floyd? Because, you know, he's pretty popular because anytime Pretty Boy Floyd was breaking into a bank, was he stealing bank money? Yes. What was he also doing, Dad? Yeah, he was also going into the banks, and at that time, the bank held the mortgage papers, and the only record of uh, a mortgage was the records that were in the bank. And oftentimes, uh, he would go in there, rob the, the bank of the money, but he would also destroy by burning the, the various mortgages. So now, if you're a destitute farmer, you're in the middle of the Depression, there's crop failures and all this kind of shit, and you're losing the farm or you're, you're losing the house, and now this outlaw goes in there and burns the mortgage in the bank. Hey, there's no record of a mortgage being held by anybody, so I own the place free and clear now. He shot up a Dave and Buster's near us, but right afterwards he forgave our student loans. (laughs) That's right. There you go. But here's my my only question when when in regards to that stuff is, wouldn't it have also worked in reverse? Because if he destroyed mortgage papers, does then that also prove for other farmers that they might have not paid it when they did? Like, do you, you, do you, understand, yes. do you understand what I'm Yeah, so you could be paying everything on time. Now, here's the weird thing. What's the How's the bank going to enforce it? There's no way the bank's just going to be like, whoops, I guess this one's on us. The bank's right. going to find a way to fuck you because that's what they do. So right. you're right, though. So if you paid everything on time and Pretty Boy Floyd's like, I'm going to set these people free, you see? And he sets your mortgage on fire and you're like, we, we were one payment away from being free. The title was right. You burned the title too. (laughs) It's not good, man. And Pretty Boy Floyd's so popular, in fact, and after he's been gunned down by whatever story you want to believe, you want to go with Melvin Purvis saying that it was a lone gunman out there handling business or a sniper from the Great War. 
Pretty Boy Floyd's funeral is attended by nearly 40,000 people. All right. That's like what? half of the listeners of one episode yeah. of this show. Again, um, he's the he's he's the uh, the media popular hero kind of a thing. As a matter of fact, Pretty Boy Floyd is given the nickname because of these mortgage burnings and that kind of stuff, the robbing the rich and to give to the poor. The banks were hated. I mean, the banks never lose. Banks were hated. But uh, Pretty Boy Floyd gets the nickname, the Robin Hood of Cooks and Hills. Now, Cooks and Hills happens to be in the Ozarks of Oklahoma, where Pretty Boy Floyd was originally from. And he has the largest funeral in Oklahoma history. Even up till now. I be- until Jim Ross from the WWE dies, then that might be the biggest one. But uh, yes, right now, Pretty Boy Floyd is still the largest attended funeral in the history of Oklahoma. And uh, by the way, along with uh, his violence and the trumped up antics by the FBI, uh, Floyd is still, like we said, as popular as ever. All right. Almost becoming a saint in some circles, if you will, Dad. Saint Floyd. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. No time. Saint pretty boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Is Purvis, is he a law and order guy? Is he a hero saving people from these criminals? Or is he just a, you know, a big government response to the rebellious attitudes from the desperate times of the Great Depression? No time to debate that now, folks, because we're on to that next name on the list. Because once again, the title of public enemy number one is being passed down from generation to generation or a couple of weeks to a couple of weeks. Because <laughs> right. this shit's happening right. fast. 1934 was a huge year, year for all of this. I mean, the first original uh, public enemy number one was Al Capone, but they they locked him up um, on tax evasion. I mean, there there was all kinds of charges against him. um, But what really tripped Big Al up was the the tax evasion bit. Well, they they locked him up. So he's locked up. Who's next? Dillinger. Well, he's dead. Who's next? Pretty Boy Floyd. Who's next? (laughs) You know, it's like uh, who's next in the batting order? And Did anyone not die who was public enemy number one? Yes. Yeah. Yes, there is one. And we've <laughs> covered one. We've covered him on this show. Oh. Okay. And it's not Machine Gun Kelly. He was a public enemy, but he was not public enemy Capone. number one. No, the only Wait, one who was, the only one ever taken alive that was a public enemy number one was Alvin Carpus of the Carpus Barker gang, of the Ma Barker gang. No. He's the way. only one that yep. was ever taken alive. Yep. Correct. Um, now, again, somebody's got to get promoted here. Who's got a good sounding name that we can go ahead and maybe run with this? You got a guy named Dillinger, you know, you got a guy named uh, Pretty Boy Floyd. Let's uh, let's keep this thing rolling here, man. Let's figure out some other things that uh, 90s hip hop can then uh, co-opt into uh, some, <laughs> some rap monikers. There you go. Uh, well, Machine Gun Kelly was taken. So uh, not yet. He's one <laughs> of the newest yet. ones, right? Yeah. yeah Lose reception. Uh, enter Babyface Nelson. Babyface Nelson, on record as having killed the most federal agents and definitely the man that would be getting his own his very own episode soon. Because when you die in something that's known as the Battle of Barrington, you need a little bit more than the couple of minutes we have left in this episode to talk about him. Purvis is involved in this manhunt as well. Uh, J. Edgar, now th- this is true. Babyface Nelson dies in a bloody battle at the Battle of Barrington, FBI agents. And again, like I said, on record... Uh, Babyface Nelson, he's taking motherfuckers with him. Yeah, there was a lead going downrange for sure. He's, he's throwing a little, a couple of Chicago typewriters coming around with him. You know what I'm saying, kid? We get a pie from Giordano's afterwards? What do you want to do about it? Go Bears. So. Drop the gun, take the gun all. <laughs> yeah, big whoop. Want to fight about it? It's a <laughs> <laughs> well, J. Edgar Hoover's G-Men have now taken out, like you said, that all this has happened. So you have 1933, the Kansas City Massacre, 
what the hell's going on here? We're sending out cops with pop guns to try to stop gangsters with uh, assault weapons. Now, you've overcorrected and done so so quickly that in a very short span of time here, J. Edgar Hoover's G-men have taken out John Dillinger. They've killed Pretty Boy Floyd. They've killed Babyface Nelson. Also, their resources led to the death of Bonnie and Clyde, who were eventually killed by the highwaymen. Excellent movie. Go see it. Accurate. Um, and then uh, they've also killed uh, the capture and the deaths of the Carpus Barker gang. Okay. Alvin Carpus gets taken alive and Ma Barker and one of her sons die in a bloody shootout down in Florida. Check out that back episode. That is quality That's shit right That's a great there. one. Man, she was a, a wild, wild chick. Mama Fratelli um, was crazy. It's a, <laughs> She does look a lot like that. And you know what's even crazier, too, is that I have a feeling Kerry's going to age into looking like a Ma Barker type. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll say this one, man. Uh, this is pretty wild here. Uh, this also leads to the capture of the previous loser we just covered on this very show, Machine, Machine Gun, Gun Kelly. Kelly. So... Again, the FBI, all of a sudden, it's like, see how quickly a little bit of funding is going here? Hoover's getting shit done. Only problem is Hoover feels like he's not getting credit that he deserves here. He yeah, was, he sent in Purvis to go do his dirty work, if you will, that he's mm -hmm. sending out the guy. So he's sending out Melvin Purvis, and Melvin is making a big name for himself with the capture of all these these badasses. And again, we're, we still want to come back to the uh, the, the massacre with um, Kansas City and stuff. So, I mean, Congress declares war, <laughs> war against crime, if you will, that there's, there's laws being passed left and right to aid the, uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI um, comes into play. Um, there's, there's a lot of things happening here, but Melvin Purvis is making such a big name for himself that in uh, 1934, there's a, a magazine called the Literary Digest. It's a huge publication that runs a lot of polls for this and that, political polls and that type of a thing. But in 1934, they run a poll of the 10 most famous people in America. Now, of the 10 most famous people that uh, in America for the 1934, the number one name is FDR. Stands the reason he's the president <laughs> of the United States. And who's number two? Melvin Purvis. No shit. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's huge. And that just doesn't sit real well with J. Edgar because he he <laughs> wants I mean, yeah, it's he, really he wants he's to only be there because the, I put him, put him into place. You know. He wants to be the big wheel and it doesn't really sit too well. So, Melvin Purvis goes from being J. Edgar's like number one guy is one of his uh, favorites to, well, well, wait a minute now, he's getting too much positive publicity, although it's po positive publicity for the for the Bureau. It's not his it's positive not It's not going directly to J. Edgar. What so. a petty bitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but You're right, though. This literary digest, that was a, that was a big thing back in, uh, back in the time that uh, – it was kind of like the Time Magazine or Newsweek of the, of the day that uh, a lot of well-read and a lot of a lot of influential uh, publication, if you will. So just to keep track out here, like we said, that's uh, Kansas City shootout, nineteen thirty-three. By the end of thirty-four, almost everyone is uh, that was on the list has been taken out. Okay, so of course it makes total sense that Purvis would resign from the FBI and begin practicing law. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. In a, in a guy started in the uh, Bureau in 1927, gets right into the heart of things in Chicago. And then from 33, 
is waging this insane war, hunting down the most dangerous criminals in America. And then in, you know, a couple of years later, he's like, ah, I'm, I'm ready to get out. End of 1934, you know, let's go ahead. Let's, I want to start practicing law. I want to, you know, a little book learning, maybe good for me. Good old Mel. Why the jump? Well, there's rumors that Hoover was intentionally giving lowly work to Purvis out of jealousy, that that's largely believed to be the motive that um, he was saying, well, let me, if I just send him to some shit assignments, maybe everyone will start realizing, really, it's uh, the coach, not the quarterback that wins the Super Bowls around here, folks. Why am I not surprised that Jay is being yeah. such a petty Mercury? Yeah, it's a uh, petty Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, now, don't get me wrong. Bill Belichick is a genius. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback who ever lived. Don't like either of them. Not a Patriots fan at all. Okay. But there is a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, Belichick's and they're like, well, Tom can do what Tom wants to do, blah, blah, blah. And then Tom went down to Tampa and won without him. And Belichick maybe is going to win another one without him. So who knows? But that dream team of Purvis being the agent in the field and Hoover being the guy sitting there and saying, listen, I have the power in Washington. I'm recording people having sex. He had the original OnlyFans <laughs> account. <laughs> yeah, J. Edgar Hoover's just sitting there like, hey, I got this great video you want to put out on Pornhub. It's a young naval officer who might become the president one day. <laughs> That's an inside baseball reference for those who have listened to previous oh episodes of this gosh. show. Um, but yeah, the, uh, because of that jealousy here, um, and th this is actually, that theory is posited by one of Purvis's own sons because Purvis's son will then later write a book on his father's life. Um, I will write a book on your life one day, Dad, called Cabinetry and Me. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. A carpenter's tale. <laughs> um, so it, it's pretty wild here. Purvis actually, before his son can write his life story, will publish his own memoirs in 1936. And in 1937, he would marry and have three children. Uh, the key being here, the life of an FBI agent was often very hard on family men. And Hoover was known to be a real bastard about just relocating you on a whim. Yeah, because he didn't have a family. He, he never a, did. He was an infamous bachelor. Infamous so he didn't understand bachelor. it. Here's the craziest thing, too, and it's the only thing I want to retread from the Hoover episode, is that they accused him of being gay, and they accused him of dressing up as a woman because it was the funniest thing possible because he was such a straight arrow that it was like... Uh, um, yeah, that would be the polar opposite, the exactly. 180 of whatever he actually was. Yeah, it would be like uh, uh, calling, um, you know, the, the color blue green just to, uh, you know, because it, it's such a, uh, you know, it's ridiculous. That's a terrible example. I don't know why I use that, but whatever. Because um. <laughs> it's stupid. That's why it right. works. Because you you have to make up something ridiculous. It's absurd. Right. Yeah, say, exactly. Right? Right. Yeah. So the rumors persisted because of that whole thing here. But you're right. He never got married and he lived with his mother. And by the way, he never really was relocating himself either. Um, he had that position. He'd be like, oh, yeah, Jager, why don't you fucking do it? That's the move, right? That's the move. <laughs> so it, um, it's pretty nuts here. But, uh, you know, now that he's out of the bureau, he can actually have a family. So it seems like things are going pretty OK for Mel at this point here. Um, and now that he's able to be the man that he wants to be at home, it seems like he's leading a pretty happy life here. Now, of course, global events will change things up. And Purvis... Uh, much like our, our Patreon episode this month, which is also available now uh, in Spiro T. Agnew. Um, uh, good old little Mel is actually going to have to serve in military uh, uh, intelligence for him specifically in the Second World War. He will also assist in, you want to talk about a shit assignment? <laughs> yeah. I mean, not a, this is a high profile, very important assignment, but having to go through and provide evidence um, for the people who will be brought up as war criminals for Nuremberg, that's about the heaviest assignment I can possibly think of. 
and Melvin was there and he was able to lead to some of the convictions and then eventual executions uh, of some of the true war criminals. Um, At the Nuremberg yeah, trials. All If you fought for Germany during World War II, there was a lot of people that were fighting for the fatherland, okay? Then there was the crazy SS people. And then there was within the SS people, there was an even more malignant tumor of pure evil. And that's some of the people that got killed due to Nuremberg. And that's what Melvin Purvis is compiling the evidence against. Very sadly, though, in 1960, at age 56, tragedy will befall Purvis as he is found dead via an apparent suicide, okay, or at least a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. The FBI will investigate, of course, and they say, oh, looks like a suicide here. Uh, Coroner does not agree with that. People who knew him said he was a pretty happy guy. He seemed to have a good life here. Um, Not sure why he would kill himself. Um, some people were saying he was trying to extract a bullet, um, a tracer bullet from the gun because the gun that he killed himself with was given to him by his FBI, um, you know, co-workers upon his resignation or him leaving the company. So it's like, hey, here's your parting gift, man, you know. Instead of the gold watch, they gave him a gun. That's uh, <laughs> my favorite line from uh, the Naked Gun 33 and a third. Is it Frank Drebin, Leslie Nielsen's uh, retirement party, when he goes, uh, here's my badge, my gun. My wife has asked that we keep the handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do you have anything else here you want to say on the way out about uh, good old Mel or even just about the film industry and the, the pivot that they had to make? Dad? Yeah, I, I did want to bring that out. Please. Kevin, but, no, uh, it's, it's so worth me because that's one of the first times you're seeing the government interfere. We're not interfere, but make helpful suggestions. <laughs> right, right. Maybe kind of like China's doing with Netflix right now. I said it. I said it. Uh, All right. There goes the podcast. Cancel well, there, me. <laughs> there goes my job at we're, Netflix we're when squel- they open up in Eaton Town. We're squelched. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, just like, like China's doing with the, the NBA. Um, <laughs> <laughs> pivot, pivot. Yeah, well, it, it was really public opinion and that type of thing that we saw like in the late 20s and early 30s that these gangsters, mobsters, outlaws were being glorified uh, in Hollywood. And this was all pre-code film uh, era, if you will. We got James Cagney making a big name for himself by shoving a grapefruit uh, in the face of the the female lead. Um, With all the shit that was going on, all this uh, mob violence, all the... uh, machine guns in the streets and all this type of a thing, people being kidnapped, babies, infant babies being kidnapped and killed. Uh, public opinion is starting to change here big time when it's coming to you uh, right in your own backyard, if you will. Uh, in 33, um, the American Catholic bishops call for Hollywood to stop producing offensive films glorifying gangster life. In, an, in that effort, they create the Legion of Decency, and a nationwide pledge by concerned Catholics to boycott gangster movies. Now, it wasn't just the Catholic bishops. It was a lot of other um, organizations that were really putting pressure on Hollywood to stop glorifying all these gangsters. It came from Catholic priests to come up with the Commission of Excellence? Catholic bishops, yeah. That was that was the one of the heavy movers and shakers of that. Um, they got revenge eventually, Hollywood, by making the movie Spotlight. <laughs> Good Lord. And then in, in 35, by the, by the time uh, 35 rolls around, so only four years later, Hollywood is now under the um, the code, if you will, that any movies that are going to be released have to pass certain 
moral uh, code of ethics, if you will, in order to be released. And there was different ways that people tried to uh, circumvent all of that. But um, the code comes into play that now we have movies that are being released that were not to be as violent or, you know, sexual in nature or whatever. As fun. Yeah, as fun or people wanting to go see it. But by the time 35 rolls around. Um, A young Sam Peckinpah is like, yeah, that ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but now this former gangster portrayer, James Cagney, switches sides and appears in the first Hollywood film to make uh, the government and the G-men the heroes in, the, in their fight against crime and the instant classic G-men. And that's where he is uh, misquoted oftentimes with, uh, you dirty rat, you yelly belly, you, you dirty yellow bellied rat. Uh, that was his famous line from, uh, from G-men. But, you know, uh, Cagney goes from the bad guy in 31 to the good guy because now he's one of the G-men fighting for truth, justice, and the American way. So you're taking his star power FBI. and flipping. So it's like, right. um, yeah, a flip. I'm trying to think of it. I'll tell you what, Cahoons, for a casting couch, we haven't done one in a second here. Mm -hmm. For a casting couch, if you had to make a completely, and don't get me wrong, Public Enemies is really a cool looking movie. And I love Michael Mann. Um, but if you were to cast a Melvin Purvis. I already know. Who do you got? Uh, you ever seen the show Mad Men? I have. Uh, this motherfucker. Oh, Vincent uh, Carthiser. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little. Um, he's got a, definitely a little snake to him. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the, like, I knew this from because I knew who I wanted to cast when the first time we recorded this. Because I've seen this dude perform, and every time he's in something, it's always a freaking snake. <laughs> you know what you There's... do then? This would be kind of fun for you in terms of trying to figure out why the public opinion was um, so on the side of uh, the gangsters. To keep with your Mad Men theme, cast John Hamm as uh, Dillinger. And see why the audience is like, I know, like, I know that Melvin's like the good guy, but I don't know why, but I just like want to, like, I just feel like I could change Dillinger. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, uh, man. But no, I, I hear what you're saying. But I, Vincent's also a great actor. But I think he could, I think he could pull that off. And I think it'd be interesting because I do always see him in these swimy kind of roles to see him play kind of a flipped coin to that. I think that'd be kind of cool. It would be, man, because that's the whole thing with Melvin Purvis is that uh, the movie Public Enemies makes it seem like he is uh, – they, they make it they, – they don't allude to any of the, the weird stuff going on with Hoover. They make it seem like he was a failure after this. It was like a one-hit wonder kind of a thing. Um, they definitely glance over whether or not it was a suicide. Um, they they kind of make him seem like a loser at the end of the movie. And they're like, and how cool was Dillinger, right? Because Johnny Depp played him. Yeah. And you're like, listen, Dillinger still killed some people. So I got uh, – you know, maybe Babyface Nelson's not the hero. He's definitely a guns blazing guy. I get why that's appealing here, but that's Melvin Purvis, the most successful G-man of all time. And you don't know his name, but you sure know Jay Edgar's, don't you? All right. And that's why he is a quality loser fodder candidate here on our way out, Dad. Anything else for the people at home? No, I think we've pretty much covered it, Kev. All right, Cahoons, you know what you got to do on uh, September 11th this coming year here. Yeah. Um, I'm very excited about that. It would mean the world to me to have some American loser people out there. There's two things in my life in comedy that absolutely get me fired up beyond belief. Number one is when, as I'm being brought out on stage, hearing people scream American loser, which is wonderful. Uh, Marianne Flanel, uh, who came out to uh, Poughkeepsie, 
over at Laugh It Up when I was there with my buddy Mike Cannon. He screamed American loser in his German accent and made me a little upset that maybe I had done something that the European Union was coming to talk to me about. Um, Did Merkel send you? (laughs) Um, But no, when people do that, it's happening a lot at the crowds. We've had Patreon people in the crowds lately. It means a lot to me. Um, I really love this. I love doing this. And uh, the other thing that's great is uh, when when people scream uh, scream KP when I walk off stage, and that means that I earned it, all right? And I'm going to earn it on September 11th. I've been doing this for 10 years. Let me do my thing. A 7 o'clock, a 9 o'clock at the Smod Castle. Um, Eighth grade KP's dream is coming true. We're working in a (laughs) Kevin Smith adjacent environment. I'm putting out an album. Please come be a part of it. Um, my dad really, really needs you to have this be successful for me. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, he gets a pay raise, Kahuna gets a pay raise and maybe I get out of the plumbing trades. We'll see what happens, but guys, thank you so much. Please support the show over at American loser podcast on Instagram, on Facebook. I'm at KP Burke sucks over on Instagram. If you're that cute Ukrainian girl who gave me her number, let me know. Cause I think I lost it. Just DM me. I tried to follow you on Instagram. Okay. I think your name was Olga. Um, but anyway, Just support the show. Come on out for that one here, man. If you haven't joined the Patreon yet, for just as low as $3 a month, okay? You can give me $5 a month. You can give me whatever you want to do so I can keep continuing to afford to do this show. Are we a success story? Yes, but I don't know how much longer we can afford it. The rent's going up, folks. The rent is going up. (laughs) The rent's too damn high. It really is. It's getting there. And, uh, you know, we're we're working on everything here. We got a couple other big projects we're working on right now. Obviously, the album being one of them. Once that is settled and done and Kahuna's is busy editing, we have our next big project we're working on, Dad. Yeah, there's going to be a little additional element. We're going to go further Ooh. down uh, some rabbit holes here. A little extra stuff for you guys, the diehard fans. It's because of you we get to do what we love, and we do love you a lot for it. My name was K.P. Burke, and that was Melvin Purvis, American, American Loser. loser. An American Loser, the day I was born. American Loser, the day I was born An American Loser, the day I was born